0: Viet N, and Brent S. On the program today is a new guest. Mr. Bruce Lane has joined us. Bruce is the executive director of GTI Energy, a Wyoming-focused ISR uranium exploration company that is advancing the Loherma and Great Divide uranium projects in east-central Wyoming. The company also has exploration grounds in the Henry Mountains region, Utah. The company is listed on the Australian Securities Exchange under the symbol GTR, as well as on the US OTC markets under the symbol GTRIF. Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Andrew. It's good to be with you. Well, Bruce, first time on the program and therefore new to a good portion of our audience. Uh, so, why don't we start off here with you telling us about your background in the natural resource sector and then also experience in this uh, uranium market?
1: Yeah, Andrew, I am. Um... I guess I started in the natural resource sector around well, it's getting on for twenty years ago now. Prior to that, uh, I I'm originally from uh, New Zealand and, and currently live in Australia, but spent ten years in the UK and worked for a multinational consumer goods companies. And so my initial uh, experience was more commercial across marketing and uh, and sales and those sort of things and finance. Um, I uh, I did a, an MBA at London Business School in the UK and then started my next career which is in the resources sector around predominantly around financing originally around listing of companies and acquisitions and divestments of assets and then managing uh, resource companies about 20 years ago when I came to Perth to follow my wife so that's the the personal story I've had uh, an involvement with uranium uh, in particular uh, since prior to the the Fukushima you know earthquake tidal wave and an accident and so I had an involvement with a Korean asset uh, through a company called Stone Edge Metals which we recapitalized at around one and a half cents and then at the time I handed the reins over there um, I think it was trading at around 20 cents unfortunately very shortly thereafter uh, Fukushima occurred and it became hard to finance things in the nuclear business and but that really Um, that period really gave me an insight into the possibilities with nuclear power at a, you know, at a much more visceral level than I would have had before. And, you know, I always thought that at some stage um, the industry would come back. And I think the climate change narrative has driven all of that. And so back in 2018, we thought, look, it's time to get back involved. Timing's difficult. I keep reading of people who've been in the trade since in a uranium trade as a trader since 2007. I think that's you know, it's a long time um, in a market that's been quite difficult. And we started back in, in 2018 looking specifically at assets in the US. We've been involved in other jurisdictions, you know, Korea, Australia in particular. Uh, we thought the US was an excellent place to start the process of building a uranium portfolio given the climate change net zero narrative that was we thought would drive nuclear power at a macro level. But also we understood that the industry was on its knees, that there was really no uranium mining going on in the U.S. at all, uh, and there was certainly hadn't been any exploration and investment. So, you know, we're very strongly convicted that uh, that would change and that the U.S. would kind of wake up and understand the importance of its nuclear power business and that it needed uranium at home um, and enrichment and conversion and all those things. And so it's been a few years with a few ups and downs, but that's this is my kind of latest involvement in uranium and and if you look at what's been happening in the last day or two, um, I think we're pretty happy we made that move.
0: 2018 isn't a bad area to come into this. It's been a long road, but it's it's worked out along the way pretty well to keep us going this entire time. There was just enough uh, there every year for us that it was worth continuing to push this forward and we're glad we've continued to be here and be involved and exposed. With respect to just how you look at the uranium market today, Bruce, you know, maybe not around the broader commercial nuclear narrative, but specifically how you look at the market today in terms of uranium supply response and maybe some of the challenges that you're seeing that the sector now faces.
1: I guess the obvious and the most topical um, one is if we see the likes of, you know, the world's largest uranium producer, Kazatomprom, uh, which I think just overnight um, have revealed that they can't meet their production targets and they've probably missed them by something in the order of 9 million pounds and that next year they'll really struggle to get above where they are now and certainly not to where they want to be, which is 100% of their subsurface use agreements. Um, That's a fairly strong indicator that it's not easy to ramp these mines and these operations up. And we think that Cameco similarly, you know, are obviously having challenges as well. I don't know the extent to what that means. Um, and there's a call coming up with them on Fairbaith, I think it is um, 7th or rate, depending on what country you're in. Um, so the, even at the top end of the chain, uh, the biggest suppliers in the world between Chemico and Kazataprom, um, they're struggling to get more pounds out of the ground. Uh, and they really do know what they're doing. They are currently mining. And then we've got other players, developers who have struggled either to get started or restart um on on the time frames they thought or say for instance they're trying to develop a new step out isr um you know the likes of um you know UR energy who've who have made public statements about it being a bit harder to move forward than they thought shows you at, at the coalface i guess uh, the people who are pulling pounds out of the ground um currently um or in the very near term are finding it uh, aren't finding it easy to actually move those projects to where they want to be so uh, that that's that's the evidence I think um, of the next bit that I'm going to talk about and that is that obviously the industry itself globally and particularly in places like the US um, the people who were around and built a lot of these projects and there are seven permitted facilities around us within 100 miles in the great divide and in the powder of the basin in wyoming um, the people who were around who built those operations and ran them uh, aren't, aren't really there anymore um, some of them have, uh, have, have are probably um, in their later years in life and they might be retired semi-retired or um or poss- possibly even passed on in a lot of cases um, or they left the industry and went and did something else because the industry really didn't need them, didn't want them because they uh, the industry wasn't doing any mining. Uh, and that, in reality, has been going on, a process has been going on for about 30 years since the end of the 80s when the megatons uh, to megawatts weapons downblending program started and when the US government withdrew its subsidies and when the Kazakhs turned up with cheap uranium and then... When Fukushima occurred, and you had the likes of the Japanese destocking their inventory, and even some US reactors over time, like Diablo, destocking their inventory. So, we've had a lot of drivers in the industry that have made the industry look very, very unattractive, deeply unattractive, um, you know, in respect of mining uh, uranium. And so, the people simply aren't there. And it's not that they can't be retrained, and it's not that the industry won't respond to improved prices and certainly the prices if the spot price is an indicator of where long-term contract price is going to be those prices are at the incentive level for the domestic industry in the us and that's why these operations are turning back on but the supply response is going to be tricky it's going to take time and how long uh, is a very difficult question to answer accurately But suffice to say, I think there are a lot of people with a very deep understanding and who've done a lot of analysis in the industry and who've been in the industry for a long time are are saying quite loudly that the supply response is going to be very, very challenging just to supply the existing reactor fleet demand, um, given that there's already a gap of around 50 million pounds between primary mine production and the annual requirement. don't quote me on the exact number but it's of that order so if you put new reactor builds on top of that another 30 million pounds and you take the casetta prom announcement of you know nine nine million pounds less than they thought they were going to do this year and who knows next year then you know you can see that the industry needs to pull really to meet the demand from the nuclear power sector Needs to pull a heck of a lot more pounds out of the ground and it is just going to take longer than people would think and a bit of detail on that answer but i think um the supply response
0: is going to be uh, slow appreciate the comments there and it's good to talk specifically about some of the issues in the sector and the supply response answer and the reality is is there is no good answer to the supply response and that it's going to take years to accomplish some form and put the pieces together of an answer and none of us know what that looks like, but we do know that uh, it's going to be very difficult to get there. And, and a lot of checks are going to have to be written from people outside the industry and people in the industry to finally get uh, some of those answers uh, going through the uh, the pipeline, if you will, Bruce. So I appreciate the, the comments there. Mm-hmm. Why don't we move into a quick overview of GTI Energy? Of course, is a subject of this program. For now, why don't we just have a quick overview of the company and then from there let's get into some specifics in a moment
1: the history of the company it's been listed on the ASX since about 2007 it was uh, involved in gold exploration in uh, in Western Australia and in fact you know we in the early part of my involvement we were actually running gold exploration as well as uranium exploration Um, on projects we we acquired in Utah, and that's when I became involved with the company at that time. Um, We subsequently divested the gold projects into a spin-out, into a company called Regenerate Resources. R8R is the code on the ASX. And so the company holds around 5 million shares of that um, company, which. Are, have been under an escrow until you know the middle part of this year. So that's a financial asset of the company now. What we do with that at this point is is not entirely clear, but uh, suffice to say there, are, there will be options around that. The reason we did that was uh, there are a lot of gold companies around and, and a lot of pure play gold companies, and really our investors wanted us to focus on uranium. That's where they felt the opportunity was going to be in the future, and we certainly strongly agreed with them. Uh, we really had to take a process, though, over time so that the ASX didn't force us to recomply with the listing rules. And, and that's sort of where we found ourselves, uh, is starting with some assets in Utah. But we were always looking for ISR projects, and, and we were very interested in Wyoming. And through a number of factors, we were able to identify some land packages in Wyoming that we thought, in the Great Divide Basin particularly, Um, showed some very good promise for the future. And that's where those um, projects at both the Great Divide Projects and Green Mountain, which are all essentially in the Great Divide Basin, how we uh, we came to own those was uh, through some connections, obviously being in the States and working in the States and working with our geological consultants there, we were able to identify uh, what we thought were the best bits of open ground that still remained in the Great Divide Basin. And this was back when nobody was exploring and uh certainly nobody was talking about um restarting plants. I think UR Energy were were probably thinking about wouldn't it be nice if uranium was not twenty or thirty dollars a pound, but fifty or sixty dollars a pound. And if it is, then they were sort of probably the 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 there to restart into full for commercial production. And that's obviously what we've seen happen. Um but we also were, were looking to build our land package out. We conducted exploration uh, and got some good success in the Great Divide, but we were always looking for new projects and our Low Herma project then um, appeared as an opportunity and, and it was a combination of acquiring uh, a, a very significant database that was uh, p- produced in the 70s, uh, drilled in the 70s um, and, uh, and, and some of it in the 80s. Uh, so we acquired the database and uh, secured the land package by staking to pull that project together in the Powder River Basin, just about 10 miles or so. Uh, we are 10 miles to the west of uh, Smith Island, Cameco Smith Island Ranch. So that's how we sort of gained the property portfolio um, through acquisition through uh, of, of property, through um, staking and through acquisition of data. And the expiration to date has, I think when we started 2023, we didn't have any resources quoted. Um, but we now, through the course of 2023, we've got 7.4, close to 7.4 million pounds of, of resource um, defined and and published under the JORC rules. And uh, and we have an exploration target um, in addition across the portfolio of an extra, I think, 15 to 20 million pounds. So we think, you know, there's there's good line of sight to a potential, a very, significant potential asset portfolio there but the focus at the moment is our low herma project that's our main focus given our you know capabilities in terms of you know resources uh, you know in terms of people and money and time and all those things we think the best investment the company can make is to grow and and move forward that low herma project and so that's what we're doing
0: On the capital structure, why don't we just cover off here before we get back into some of the projects and plans. Tell us uh, where we are with the shares outstanding at the company at this point, the cash on hand, if there is a need to conduct an equity financing in the coming months, and also the major shareholders at this point on the roster.
1: Yeah, we've got just north of 2 billion shares on issue. At the end of the most recent quarter, which was uh, the 31st of December, we disclosed a little over $2 million Australian in cash. The company's got a, an ATM in the market. It's for, I think, a total of 97 million and change, 97 million shares. And so that's a potential source of finding, financing as uh, as we move forward. If the, if there's price and volume in the market, then that can deliver some funding to us. Though, you know, we're obviously very mindful of you know, being pragmatic and and sensible about how that's used. We uh, are in the process of refining our exploration plans as we go forward. Matt Hartman, who's our president of US operations, just joined us during the last month. And whilst he spent a bit of time consulting with us at the very back end of last year, uh, he didn't join us formally until um, around the middle of January. And he's uh, now onboarded and has his um head around uh what we've done to date and and um and obviously he already knew quite a bit about the company before he started, but in terms of really understanding the geological setting, the models, um, you know, how the resources are calculated, uh, where the exploration potential is both along strike and and at depth at the project and and you know planning that next exploration program um, permitting ground access all that all that stuff it, we're only really getting to that point now so we're I think through the course of the next uh, few weeks uh, we'll uh, have have a better handle on the exploration possibilities um, going forward where we think we should put those holes how many of them what depth will that all that stuff and that will help us to really drive out what the forward budget looks like and help us to understand what our capital needs will be to achieve the outcomes that you know we think are possible so you know to your answer about uh, future financings we're not desperately in the market for cash um, at this at this point we're not we don't have a raising open we do have some bond money to come back we may be able to liquidate um, an asset or we'll find money elsewhere but it is possible that we'll come to the market for a raise some stage this year uh, and maybe even this half. But there's no concrete plans. I think it's fairly obvious that there's a possibility of a raise coming. But um, and I would say this, but and this is not financial advice, but uh, I believe that the evaluation doesn't accurately reflect the value of our assets at the moment. Uh, I think if you look back at the previous cycle, pounds in the ground were, you know, worth multiple dollars in transactions and and within uh companies um, and at the moment you know the market's probably giving us somewhere in the order of a dollar or two a pound you know depending on how you how you value expiration target pounds and so we think it was probably more in the five or six dollar a pound range back in the last in the last cycle and and that was when the uranium price was 65 dollars so we think there's value to arrive in our share price over time. It's not there at the moment. And, and so to raise money at these levels is, is obviously, um, we'd prefer to do it at a higher price is what I'm trying to say in a very uh, roundabout way. Yeah, look, we've got some options listed out there. Uh, a class GTRO on the ASX, there's 400 odd million of those. Um, they've got a strike price of 3 cents and they expire in, uh, in, in October this year. And then on top of that, there's some performance rights, most of which at this point remain unexercised in relation to the Branca Minerals acquisition, which was uh, the acquisition of our Green Mountain project. Um, and at this stage, I think uh, some of those may have even expired, or are likely to expire very soon, unexercised. So, short answer is two billion shares, and um, you know around uh, 400
0: uh, million options. Bruce, thank you for that. On the other piece here, I think that's uh, important is for you to discuss uh, some of the folks over there at the company that are supporting you. Any folks there that you want to mention, key folks, and their expertise area as to how they're supporting the company?
1: Andrew, there's probably three that I think are worthy of mention at this point. I mean, obviously, they all contribute, everybody on the board and within the organization. So Jim Boffman, who's a director and, and does a bit of executive work for us, He's a Wyoming-based, or Denver and Wyoming-based geologist. He grew up in in Wyoming. He's been involved for um, at least over 30 years. Um, He's been a chief geologist, a chairman, a president, a a CFO and a COO in public and private companies. He was uh, instrumental in the um, sale of uh, High Plains Uranium to Uranium One back in 2006. Um, and he was also involved with uh, Cyclone Uranium and, and really, you know, part of the founding group there. So Jim's been very instrumental in helping us identify projects and and uh, and also introducing us to people in the industry. So he's a very valuable member of the team based over there, obviously, in uh, in Denver and, and in Wyoming. Uh, Matt Hartman just joined us, as I said, touched on before, Matt is um, a geologist and has a, quite a deep commercial experience as well. He worked with SRK, but he's also worked with Uranium Resources, Strathmore Minerals in the past. Most recently with Sweetwater Royalties, which was the largest private landholder in Wyoming. They've got some very significant Trona assets, part of the checker Board as well. And so Matt's role there was to uh, work through their portfolio, identify some opportunities for um, uh, growing the value of that land package and, and finding partners to work with it. Um, so he spent a few years there and obviously that's given him some additional, uh, both you know, broad-scale exploration experience, but obviously a lot of commercial experience uh, on top of what he already had. So Matt's uh, quite fundamental. He's worked on ISR projects. He's worked on Smith um, Highland Ranch at Cameco's project. He's worked at uh, Dewey Burdock on, on uh, Laramide's um, the Church Rock He's got the sort of experience that uh, really is perfect for us having uh, worked with us previously when he uh, was with SRK when we first arrived in the States and we're working on our Utah projects. Matt was really helped guide all our exploration activities there and helped us on the commercials as well. So the fact that he's agreed to come and join us is uh, is really encouraging for us i think it's an endorsement of the projects and also we, we, he's a great fit for us here. We we get on well and, uh, but his commercial and, and technical experiences is, is, is hard to find in one person let alone somebody who's got in situ recovery uranium experience on projects in wyoming we're delighted that he's part of the team and we think it's going to make a big difference to us going forward, it's just in terms of complementing what we've been doing with brs engineering doug beam at brs has been helping us out for the last few years. Um, and that's a very fundamental, important relationship for us. And once again, highly valued relationship from our point of view. Doug and his team there are based in Riverton and Wyoming and in Denver, and uh, and they really help provide the meat of our um, exploration capability on the ground. And, and that's been very successful to date in also all aspects of moving the exploration projects forward but also in terms of planning how we might look at uh, commercializing these deposits from a development point of view going forward uh, and, and brs have deep experience in the exploration side um, the development side and rehabilitation so they're quite a unique organization having been involved in an situ recovery in wyoming for you know in excess of 40 years probably over 45 years actually in doug's case so That kind of, I guess, the key drivers, the locally based people. I think that sets us apart from others who are either just getting started or trying to get to the point of having a resource. So, yeah, we're we're in good stead.
0: Good to always highlight some of the folks that you're associated with and who are helping advance things forward here at the company. But how about we uh, get into Laherma for a moment? Um, I know you covered a few things earlier, but maybe we can refresh you just a little bit and focus in on really what the next plan is for the project here. So. You know, you gave us a flavor as to what the inventory of uranium is there now. Obviously, there's probably some confirmation work that needs to be done there to improve uh, category confidence, as well as uh, probably some test work being done at some point here on confirming ISR amenability. But go through what you see as the immediate next steps to progress the project. Economic studies, When you expect to see some of those start to flow out here? And then what you see as the most meaningful pathway to development in terms of full-blown facilities or if this is basically an operation that will be uh, sent over to a processing facility to be handled.
1: Look, before I start this, obviously this is the the part of the presentation where we can sort of wander off into forward-looking statements. And so, you know, I qualify anything I say here with the fact, the kind of obvious fact that our resources at this point are... Inferred and uh, expiration target numbers. So, please just keep that in mind when I'm talking about the possibilities of what we, you know, what we uh, believe could occur in the future if everything goes according to plan. Um, so, the current resource stated is 500 and uh, 5.71 million pounds at a at an average grade of 630 ppm. Um, what's notable about that is that that grade we believe is um, a very um, you know, a commercial grade, if you like, if you look at an, at neighbouring projects uh, in both the Great Divide and in the Powder River, um, that certainly would appear to be an economic viable grade, um, given that the project also has, um, you know, the right location below the water table, that the right widths and thicknesses are, are present so that we can get a grade thickness calculation of at least, you know, two. So there are a number of other things that lead to the economic question but at least we're starting with grade that we think could work if those other things come together. There's an exploration target there of an additional 5.8 million pounds up to 10 million pounds so clearly if we hit the top end of that we're at around 15 million pounds and if we hit the bottom end of that we're at around 10 million pounds in that grade range. So we think that's a meaningful project and I think everything I say should be couched against some understanding of what the scale means because this is not next gen's arrow this is this is a, a much different project for for lots and lots of reasons um and i'll try and touch on those through the course of the call but your specific questions were around well what do we do from here and of course we as i said earlier we are still in the process of synthesizing the drill uh, information that we collected at the end of last year we drilled 26 holes there And the object um, of that program was two things. One was to confirm, validate, and validate the data that we used to generate this resource. Uh, We had 1,700 drill holes, uh, drill logs from historical drilling. Uh, They were paper logs, we had to scan those, digitize them, pull them into a database. Ground truth, the location of those holes and we've gone through a process of trying to validate that material that that data so that under the jork rules we can hand on heart say look it's representative of you know what we believe is in the ground and so that drill program that we conducted was you know partly for that reason the other reason we did it was to test some of our exploration hypotheses around where the trends went it within the Wasatch Formation, the upper part of the Wasatch Formation, and we, the historical drill holes are really down around that sort of three or 400 feet mark, say, you know, around 100 meters. So we wanted to test what was below those drill holes because there weren't uh, many dri- deeper holes at all. Uh, and we wanted to test, so we wanted to test the lower part of the Wasatch Formation, the trends along trend in the Wasatch Formation, but also there's a formation below us called the Fort Union Formation, which um, is productive in the basin and Cameco has been producing from that formation in the past um, about you know, 10 or, or so miles to, to our east. So we wanted to get a sense of whether or not we, um, we had mineralization within our footprint, you know, within the project footprint in, along those vectors, because that's what really supports the exploration target. Although, you know, our exploration target really doesn't include anything at depth, it's, it's really based on uh, the trends within the Upper Wasatch at this point. Uh, and so the drilling program gave us some encouragement around uh, both, all, all, all three of those exploration hypotheses and it was designed to help us to plan this next phase of drilling which is going to occur this year so 26 holes is a fairly modest program we thought at the end of last year whilst I'd like I would have liked to have drilled more we didn't think it was prudent given the way the market was still reacting the broad market was very soft for equities uh, in the junior sector um, in in the nano cap space which is where we are and also the uranium market although it had improved markedly uh, seem to be uh, sort of trading sideways a bit, and the explorers were really not um, in favour yet at that point. And we, but we have seen that change dramatically in the early part of this year. So all that said, really, I think uh, we're now confident that we can go and do what we wanted to do, which is to, to expand the drill programme at Low Herma and push on to try and bring as much of that exploration target as we can into Inferred. And then, you know, there may be a potential there to upgrade some of the inferred resource and to indicate it. Uh, but as you alluded to earlier, uh, I think in your question, Andrew, there's a few things we have to do to upgrade the confidence of the resource, um, both as a, a resource that would be, you know, amenable to open pit or, or, or underground or whatever form of mining, but also particularly for ISR um you know the distance below the water table the thicknesses uh, the permeability disequilibrium we need to start collecting more data and uh, delivering that in order to be able to move say closer to a pea or beyond that and so the pea would be the next logical step for us part of the conversation we have about that is well how many pounds do we need before we uh start a pea and um, we've seen projects around the six or seven million pound with PEAs. I think Gazaga had one of the gas hills. Uh, we've seen UR Energy say that their intention is to move on and develop um, their Shirley Basin project. I don't think they've uh, um, pushed the FID button and essentially said they are definitely going, but I think they're certainly heading in that direction. I won't speak for them, but that's my understanding. Um, and that's an 8.8 million pound project, I think recoverable uh, six. Uh, 6.4, or, and don't quote me on that number, but um, so it, as an ISR satellite project for their Lost Creek plant, which is 30 miles up the road, and they'll they'll uh, put in a bore field and an iron exchange plant and truck beads um, to Lost Creek uh, is my understanding, where they'll do the back end drying and drumming. That's my understanding from the public disclosures of, you know, don't, don't once again, don't hold me to that, but I believe that's the process. So we know that projects that are around, you know, if you get them to sort of seven or eight million pounds, then they perfectly seem to be perfectly viable as a satellite. Um, if they've if, if all other things uh, fall into place, I think they base their thinking around a price of around $70. I think their PEA, I don't know whether it says 65 or $70, but it's around that level. At $100, um, if that is the long-term contracting price or north, these things obviously, you know, a smaller project can look economic. Having said that, look, our ambition is to drive the exploration to deliver a larger number of pounds in the ground. This next exploration program will obviously once again tell us more and it may open up the possibility of more pounds at a deeper level. And, you know, that's that's not baked into our numbers here. So get it as big as possible, as fast as possible, as cheap as possible, is the answer to what we're doing next. And uh, without wanting to be too glib about it, that that is is it in a nutshell, and collect enough data along the way so that when we want to wrap an economic story around it, we're actually able to do that. And yeah, I guess that captures our thinking at this point.
0: A lot of options here for you guys to to go in on this, and of course, we're in a market that you know we're very close to global projects are now in the money, and it's funny uh everybody talked about how their projects throw off massive amounts of cash at forty and fifty dollars and sixty dollars and now we are at a hundred dollars at least in the spot market of course, term is at sub seventy at the moment, while all that fluff was talked about back then over these years that the Mm. actual action on the ground is a different telling story. I've also seen, you know, there's some of these super projects that over a drink or two, oh, the costs are negative. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, it's just a little bit of a joke there, but I guess if if you attach the carbon credits, it very well could be. But, you know, there's just a lot of pieces that go to this. And this is interesting because you guys have the ability at small scale. With that comes generally not a large CapEx. You're in a position where you guys are close by and could establish relationships with others to toll process, essentially. It is interesting from that standpoint. And of course, in Wyoming, the permitting process, so long as you do some due diligence and studies in advance, pre-work or pre-permit, if you will, you can usually get that across and moving fairly quickly. So it'll be interesting to see how you guys determine is the best course on this. So with LAHRMA, obviously that's the core focus. I, I just want to give you an opportunity to talk about the Great Divide Project, as well as, if you want, uh, you guys do have a project in Utah, any comments on those other projects that are basically deemed non-core at this point?
1: Yeah, look, I'll um, I'll, I'll touch on those uh, briefly, but I wanted to just wrap up and sort of add on to what you said there, Andrew, about the viability and the optionality and the costs and, uh, you know, I think there's a there's a a, um, a sense that these are small projects and 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 I guess if you're comparing them to a Macarthur or a, an Arrow you know a Husab or a Rossing yeah they they are small but don't forget that you know if you have 10 million pounds and uh, let's, let's use 100 100 um, as a uranium price they're worth you know it's still a billion dollars mm-hmm. in ground um, if your capex is you know use a hundred dollars a hundred million dollars but um, it could be lower than that And i think if we see you get the numbers for the pea for shirley basin are out there and the numbers for um peninsula's um, uh, lance processing back end you know the elution precip drying drumming circuit are out there and you put those two together um that's around 50 odd million dollars so call it 60 for round numbers and then you've got your ball field development cost so if that, and if you're all in sustaining cost is in the region of sort of 30 or $40, and some of them are higher, some call it, call it 50 if you want to use round numbers. These things are pretty attractive projects, you know, at, at what looks like modest numbers compared to Cassetta Prom, but they are definitely worth having, which is why the guys who own these assets, the companies that own, own these assets are, are switching them back on. Our asset is very relevant in that context, and if you're a UEC and you've You're going to switch on uh, Willow Creek in August, as they say there, and sell their product into the spot market. Um, Then, you know, the more pounds you can line up for your plant, the better, one way or another. And drilling these things out and getting them through the PEA and getting them through the, the, you know, some sort of um, final investment decision, it does take a while. And anybody who's got uh, a few years head start in that process. Is going to look attractive as a partner or you know uh, an acquisition target or what have you. And in the meantime, all we do is we we keep focus on, on our core job, which is trying to expand the size of the resource, wrap economic numbers around it, and move it in the direction of development. And if one of those things comes along in the meantime, you know somebody wants to partner with us, buy the asset. It could be the Japanese, it could be the Koreans, it could be Exxon, it could be who knows. We don't we don't know. It's all. You know obviously um, speculation it doesn't change what we do in the meantime and um, we just know that we're doing it in an environment where those things are starting to become real so anyway so i just wanted to wrap it all up and say well it's a small project compared to these other ones why, why would it be interesting and i think you spoke about the time frames the time frames are different here next gen is going to take a long time to get arrow into production if it i don't know what that time frame really is i don't think anyone really does these things are comparatively fast and easy, particularly if you're working with somebody who already has a permit and already has production uh, licenses, that sort of thing, in in the region. So our other projects, there's two in the Great Divide Basin area, one is, we call the Green Mountain Project and the other one is the Great Great Divide Group. The Green Mountain Project is quite a large parcel of land, comparatively, It um, and we conducted some geophysics there, as we did um, on Low Herma, to help us just understand You know, the the radiometrics work quite well for mineralisation that isn't uh, too deep. We've got drill holes at Green Mountain as well, historical information. So we were able to marry the geophysics up um, with the drill holes and actually identify some significant trends on Green Mountain, which would indicate that there is, you know, there's some value in pursuing, um, you know, that that opportunity in the future. And we wanted to do that geophysics, get the interpretation right, uh, so that we could pinpoint our drilling more accurately, and so what we're in the process of doing is refining that drill program. We'll move forward with permitting that so that we, it's an option for for exploration if not this year then then next year look if we if we deem that we should be spending all our money at Low herma and really focusing on that then we'll you know we'll likely prioritize that if we're funded and resourced to pursue um, Green Mountain, uh, we obviously uh, would like to do that. Um, we believe there's real potential there, and it also gives us an option for partnering on that project um, if anyone's interested going forward. So there are, you know, really the whole idea here is to generate optionality around a project which we think, de- you know, deserves investment going forward. And we think it certainly does deserve investment. Um, so, you know, watch this space in terms of what we do with it. The Great Divide Basin, we have a resource there, £1.66 million. Um, there are opportunities to drill there. We've got permits in place there. We could drill there. We have, as I said earlier, chosen to focus on Low Herma. Um, you know, we have permits, still have permits in place in Low Herma, and and we're going to extend that permit um, and look to drill, you know, a larger program there. Uh, great Divide, we could go in there and drill. At this point, we've determined we'd rather spend our money at Low Herma, um, but it is interesting. Um, our full project, for instance, is only you know, 15 miles away from the Lost Creek um, ISR plant. The mineralization we think, looks pretty similar to what's being processed through Lost Creek. We have an opportunity to make that project bigger through exploration, and that is certainly not out of the realms of possibility uh, for activity. It's really just about how much we can do in a, in a given space of time with the money that we have and the people we have. Um, so, look, once again, very valuable to us, very interesting for us. Um, there are expansion possibilities there which we're pursuing, um, but um, at, you know, not not our focus for this twenty for this year unless things some things change. And then we get to Utah. So we have a package of ground in Utah, you know, a little over three thousand acres. We we did work on that, um, you know, uh, back in 2021. I think um, we've got. Uh, a pretty good idea of what the exploration possibilities are particularly on the we've got one quite significantly contiguous piece of ground um there at our sort of jeffrey section 36 um project uh and you know we have some exploration internal internally generated exploration numbers there we have put quite a few drill holes in it we've got quite a few historical drill holes you know the data was that that work was done by srk and by brs it's a good asset. It has. We believe there are pounds there that could be bought into Jork without too much effort. We've got the Tickaboo Mill that um, Anfield are working on is right there on the doorstep. You know, a couple of miles away, and we've got White Mesa uh, Energy Fuels. White Mesa is about 100 miles by road. Uh, Energy Fuels have said they're going to put out a buying schedule and go back to the old days when, you know, the way that mill was supplied was certainly partly through district ore buying and an ore buying station at Tikaboo, used to be an ore buying station at Tikaboo, where where the shootering mill is that Anfield are working on. So there's some real potential for that asset going forward. It's in the good spot where there's definitely work going on. Um, how it gets commercialized in the future is a bit hard to say at the moment. Um, we're happy to, to hold it. Um, we may look for a partnering deal on it. Um, it's unlikely that we, we will do any more primary exploration on it this year. Uh, but. Uh, you know, who knows going forward? We think it's a, it's, it's an interesting asset in a, in a spot where there's going to be a very very high demand for uranium, especially when White Mesa gets switched back on at either fifty percent or a hundred percent capacity. It's a big mill. There's lots of mines to feed it, and the mines all typically. Um, you know, there's a, there's, it's not easy to get a lot of uranium out of the ground through the underground mining in that area and the style of mineralization. So that's typically, you know, we think it would need to be a, a kind of district-wide effort to feed that mill at full pelt. Um, so that gives you a summary of all of the projects and, you know, some understanding of why we're focusing on low Herma and uh, some of the value that's in the company beyond that.
0: Yeah, that area down there in Utah is certainly interesting, and you don't have to look much further than Denison's operations down there in the past to get a rough context of what it takes to move a small quantity of pounds out of that particular region that you mentioned there. So I appreciate you covering that off. One of the other things here is just looking back at Wyoming again here. You know, you have a number of peer companies out there, and then, of course, you have to look at competitive advantages between these peers as you well know there is besides of course developer and producer class peers in wyoming you have a number of peer companies in the exploration segment from strathmore plus nuclear fuels premier american and probably a few more to come bruce but what do you mm-hmm. think in general to you really sets gti apart of course it does have historical pounds here or inferred pounds but what do you think really sets GTI apart from, say, this pack that I mentioned?
1: Well, I think that's the the one you've just spoken about is the obvious one. And I think,
0: um, yeah, I guess you
1: can call them historical pounds, but we'd like to think that they're, you know, they're more contemporary than just an historical resource, just simply by virtue of the amount of work we've done with the geophysics, you know, the ground truthing, the drilling we've just done. We don't, we don't call them historical anymore. They're ger- current jork. So that's the Correct. key thing that sets us apart. Nobody else has got pounds in the ground certainly nothing and and certainly nothing that looks like it could be scaled as a developable isr satellite or a cpp central processing plant so to the best of our knowledge we are the only ones now you know who else is out there and who else is doing exploration yeah there's a few that have started and done a bit but they haven't done much you I know mean, we've been we've been executing exploration in in the u.s um you know now for getting on for four years um and this is our third season in Wyoming so we know we can execute we know what to do we we've proven we can get it done we've proven that when we stick the drill bit in the ground we get results we've managed to bring results onto our onto our books so I don't see anyone else that's done that yet now nuclear fuels obviously they've got good backing they're tied in with Encore you know Bill Sheriff's very um experienced and a lot of people follow him so you know I, I can't speak to them and i won't generally comment on what they're doing um but they are exploring 40 odd miles up the road from us in, in the powder river um at the kc project and i don't want to advertise what they're doing but um but you know that that they're, they're actually out there hammering holes in the ground and they've got uh on behind them if they can put something up if they can stand up 10 million pounds on paper That's I S R amenable, then you know they've got a a willing partner there for development in in Encore. So that's their benefit, but that's also their detriment. I mean, you know, we're free range. You know, we're not aligned with Encore or U S C or U R Energy or Energy Fuels or anybody at this point. We're uh, backed by financial investors who want to maximise the value of that asset in the ground, and we believe that that may appear, you know, over the next. Six, twelve, eighteen, twenty months. So I think we stand out in the fact that we've made so much progress that we've delivered a lot. You know, we've had a a very fruitful last twelve months. We also have a team there that can execute and a partnership that can execute in Wyoming that's got the track record, not just with us, but with many other partners and and clients and you know projects. So, we do think we stand apart, and I think we also stand apart because we're undervalued. Um, and, you know, once again, that's not financial advice. I'm not asking people to, to buy shares on that basis. So I'm just saying that, you know, our perception of our valuation is that we're relative to others, you know, we're, we're undervalued, and that's the opportunity for investors. And we think the next 12 months will, you know, you'll see some things from the company that will help to cement that value. And, uh, you know, we're very hopeful that the market will start to recognize that in a more meaningful way than it has over the last 12 or 18 months.
0: I do think that that is a little bit of a set aside here. And obviously there are some various teams out there in the peer side, some proven and some purely unproven. And I do like the sense that you guys do have a project and I apologize duly noted that you guys uh, do not have historic pounds there and that you guys have started to improve the confidence level there. So no doubt in my mind is a good chunk of those pounds certainly there for you guys. And I think that's a piece that you guys should really take advantage of is that you guys have that advantage. I would certainly focus that advantage on how those pounds create that value, and obviously, to me, I see path to production, I see path to cash flow as, as the uh, the priorities here. Not necessarily the expiration comes in due course. For what that's worth, I do think that that's a good point out uh, away from the pack there. As we go here, I want to get into local community in a moment, but before we do, you know, one of the other aspects here that uh, sometimes we like to ask is M&A strategy. Maybe the company has one, maybe it doesn't. But this question came from the audience. But if a situation existed to be taken over by a peer company or even a developer or producer in the region, Bruce, would that be something you would do? And specifically, this question from the audience uh, wanted to know if Peninsula Energy specifically was of interest and if you have a relationship with them.
1: Uh, look, do we have a relationship with Peninsula? Um, we know Peninsula. I think uh, Jim Boffman on our board has known Wayne highly for a... Number of years and and I've met Wayne. You know, we're very supportive of what Peninsula are doing, and um, I have to disclose I'm also a shareholder in Peninsula. I think Peninsula's got its hands full with what it's doing. Um, It's raised the money, they've got to get into production and prove that they can get the recoveries and the flow rates and all those things that uh, Wayne understands so well. So I think you know talking about Peninsula, it's a bit of a long bow. I don't think he'll be turning his mind to m and a and expansion outside of what he's got. He's got a big portfolio of ground that he can move forward with, and he has been doing that he's got a had a project that isn't. Isn't in some ways isn't dissimilar to Low where he's had historical data and he's used that to stand up a resource and and he's got a, a possibility to move forward with that. But I, I hasten to say that I think his short term focus is very much on getting his his mill into production and and and, and supporting that cap raise that he's just done, uh, which, uh, which has been very successful. So. We don't think about Peninsula in, in that way, if you like, um, although you never say never about anything is probably the short answer we'd always talk to Wayne if he wanted to talk to us, but I just don't think he will at this point, and I say that out of a, out of a huge amount of respect for what he's doing and, uh, and, a, and, a, and a reasonable understanding of where he's at in the life cycle of the project. So. You know look we we do talk to our neighbors. I mean, it's a small industry, there's uh, various things, various reasons why it's a good idea to talk to our neighbors from an operational point of view uh, around flora and fauna, um, stage grouse, those sorts of things. So you know we're all aware of each other. I think you know looking at all of the companies around us if you if you look at them today, you know Uec getting back into production in August from their latest announcements, they'll obviously have a very strong focus on actually executing that and putting out some information to the marketplace that supports them doing that successfully. So I don't see them being overly focused on acquisitions at this point. That's as of today I'm talking about. Um, similarly with UR Energy, they're moving on with Shirley Basin. Um, we're not aware that they're out there shopping for um, a conversation with us you know, around acquiring things. And part of that is I think you know where we are in the set in the space. Now, if uranium price keeps getting stronger, if the Japanese come knocking and the Koreans come knocking and the French come knocking and who knows that whoever else Exxon comes knocking, then the world can change very very quickly. So um, we would respond to that. But we think that where we're at from that point of view is as you said Andrew, these we need to put the substance around these assets and then strategic buyers will have their own strategic valuation for the assets. So if they have a five and a half million pound processing plant like they do at Cameco and they they need five and a half million pounds output a year, they need, let's say, you know, eight million pounds input from the ball field, uh, they've got good assets around those that plant, and, and some of them are probably ready to go for all we know. But another 10 million pounds 10 miles away, you know, that's a year of operation uh, for their plant. Would they deem it to be big enough for them to bother with? I don't know, you'd have to ask them, but that's where we see the value in the assets. But I don't think we're at that point where somebody will come and want to take us out. And if they did, I think it's too early for us personally, but we, you know, it's never one answer. It depends who it is, is always the question. It depends how much they want to pay. Um, But if you look at a path to production on assets, clearly somebody who's already got the plant and the permits and the licences and the people um, should be able to accelerate the commercialization of the asset and therefore from a time value of money point of view an mpv point of view the faster you can get that done the better then you know we would be silly not to think about that so very circuitous answer nothing concrete in there but we are very aware of the possibilities and uh, it's 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 going to be we'll deal with it on an opportunistic basis
0: should it occur Bruce, I appreciate you entertaining the question there from one of the audience members. Once again, I think uh, a lot of this is dictated on a point in the cycle. And then, of course, price is always a big question mark as these things get evaluated. Aside from pro forma companies and pro forma concerns such as uh, continued deployment and termination, change of control, et cetera, that always plays into these uh, things. And as you know... Given the the sector has been uh, very difficult times, uh, basically post uh, 2009, 2010 timeframe that, uh, you know, there's a number of folks also that are quite entrenched in their positions and uh, don't move easily, if you will. Certainly, uh, I think you see that if you spend any time in the sector here. So Mm -hmm. I'd like to just get your thoughts here before we wrap up. Uh, You know, another important topic that uh, has a growing importance out there everywhere, every jurisdiction. But. Uh, cover for us the local community work that you are doing in Wyoming. Of course, we know that you're a small company and that that can't really ramp up substantially, but nonetheless, it still happens. Just in terms of you know local employment, utilization of local service providers, Bruce, and then any other areas you've targeted that you want to mention here.
1: Yeah, look, I think I'll couch my comments here against the backdrop of you know the company, you know, thinking about things from an ESG point of view. I mean. You know, it depends which jurisdiction and who you're talking to as to whether the concept of ESG is positive, negative or otherwise. And I think there's even a move afoot to change uh, the terminology from ESG to something else. And I can't for the life of me as we talk, remember what the other name for it is these days. But, you know, it is vitally important that we do more than give lip surface to the concept of having a social license to operate. At least with uranium and nuclear power, the general sentiment now has moved very much more to the positive than it was before. And I think that's borne out in numerous ways. I think the strongest indicator is that the political class have now see nuclear power as a net positive opportunity for them rather than just a net net negative, which is the way it really had been viewed for, you know, at least the last decade and a half up until maybe you know the last year or so. So we think there's a support, and there particularly is in Wyoming. There's an understanding that uranium's been going, mining's been going on there since the 70s. They know they're getting a new nuclear power plant down at Kimmera by virtue of uh, the Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, uh, Terra Power Rocky Mountain Power Coalition so the social license side on that in that in that frame is is I think it's it's it'll bring jobs to Wyoming it'll bring income to Wyoming it'll help to display the loss in the coal revenue um, you, you know Wyoming's the second largest energy state in the US after Texas so they've got oil and gas everywhere you know, so they they want something that's going to you know help their help pay for their kids' education for the next you know twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years the way that uh, the fossil fuel industry has. And within that, you know, we we obviously have a very tight, uh, tightly regulated environment anyway with mining exploration um, and particularly with uranium. It's self, uh, self-sanctioned, self-administered in Wyoming. We don't go to the federal government for any permits around uh, uranium. So that makes it it easier and the supportive, generally the regime is supportive, certainly at the state level, very supportive. We don't have you know First Nations people involved in our projects. They're all either on BLM land, which is open and has no land holding on it. So we really are just dealing with the BLM and the state or we have um, some parts of our projects, there's uh, some ranchers involved. And so we we have a relationship with the ranchers and we we work with them uh, with respect to their conditions for access and and activity on their land. But as I said, most ranchers in Wyoming have oil and gas, or not most, but, but certainly a significant number have oil and gas operations or some form of mining operations on their property. So I'll never say it's... It's dead easy, but relatively speaking it's um it's it's a trodden path that we can we can walk without um, being too concerned so from a social license point of view and from a community point of view, you know we obviously try and we're working with local people you know we're possible local consultants local drillers we always try and use local content wherever we are. We operated through the entire of COVID, period of COVID where I couldn't even leave Western Australia. Uh, BRS executed everything on the ground for us. I mean, I couldn't even travel to the projects for the best part of two years. So we are a local company. The only thing we have in Australia is a, is a uh, shared services office. Um, myself and, a, and an assistant who helps me with the accounts, um, and, and we have a CFO who's and, and what have you. So we're very light on in Australia in terms of activities and, and costs. It's it's really all there in in Wyoming, and that's the way we see it going forward. Uh, don't see any reason to change that. Uh, the other thing I should note is that we are Climate Active certified, which is the highest level of um, uh, certification in Australia, and one of the highest and the, the most rigorous in the world, where we track our emissions and we report them and we uh, mitigate them or offset them, and we use you know carbon credits to do that so you know we are a climate neutral certified organization, and we we carry that in our website it It has cost us some time and some money, not not a huge amount at this stage because we 're relatively small, and our emissions are relatively low, but we are very mindful that at going forward in particular that there's going to be a very there's going to be an obligation on companies to report and have audited all things to do with their ESG and their emissions policy so so we are up to speed with that so anybody who has that as a concern uh, can be assured that we uh, we take it seriously without letting it kind of divert us from the focus of uh, what we're trying to do
0: Well, Bruce, I think we covered most of it off here. Any other closing comments before we go? And let me just tie that in with uh, this last question to wrap up the program for today. For potential investors who are listening in, the company has a market capitalization of about $22 Australian dollars. Why should GTI Energy be considered within the institutional family office and retail investors portfolio?
1: That's a really good question, I think. The companies that are in the nanocap space that are sort of sub the size that you would normally see in an ETf for instance or an institutional portfolio, you know we have to make a case for one do do we have liquidity in the shares and and I think that's one thing we can point to we 've got three and a half thousand you know to four thousand depending on uh, when you when you look at the register but say three thousand eight hundred at the moment. We've got a quite a large register. We've got quite a well-traded stock. We have had historically good volume to the stock, so there's good awareness of it. On the basis of a fundamental valuation, we talked about that earlier, using you know pounds in the ground and expiration target as some measure of the value of a company. If you look at peer transactions or peer valuations for companies, um, it, it isn't an exact science by any means, but when you're looking for a way to understand what value there is in the company and how the market's valuing it uh, and and where it could be, you know, we believe that it, you'll struggle to get Cameco to double in price. And I'm not saying that means don't buy Cameco because if I've got a uranium portfolio, I want to have a portfolio of investment grade assets and Cameco's probably got to be in there for most um, serious players, as do probably the ETFs to give you that sort of balanced uh, risk reward across a basket of of, of companies. The Spark Physical Trust, for instance, you know, there's a lot, a lot will have, you know, the likes of NextGen or um, Boss Energy in their portfolio. So all those things, I, I, I have those things in my portfolio. But I also have explorers and some of those are quite high risk um, or higher risk in terms of actually getting their projects right through to commercialization. We don't believe we're at the exploration risk end because we've got we've got pounds in the ground and we've touched on some very um, interesting opportunities for you know monetization of those projects going forward. And we think that the the market will start to recognise that. So we think there's an arbitrage there between our current share price and what it can be in the next, you know, 6, 12, uh, 18 months, two years. Um, particularly as we talk about what we're doing more with a broader audience. And I think we, you know, we will do some things this year. And we've already part of the reason for hiring Matt Hartman based in in Denver is that um, he's more connected into the local market and we can get out there and tell our story more easily than, you know, me having to burn lots of air miles and um, shoe leather uh, and go and talk to people. So we will be at For instance at at pdac and we will be talking to people more actively and promoting more actively to a a north american audience over the course of the next you know 6 12 months and we believe that that can make a difference as well so you know timing's everything we think um, the market's in a spot where companies like ours will start to be recognized uh, for the value that is there and 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 that is actually a a core part of our investment proposition as uranium price goes up and the market, uh, wakes up to the fact that the pounds are are not there and they won't be there anytime soon. They'll start to look at companies like ours and, and realize that we can actually play a part in meeting that supply crunch. You know, it's not going to be this year or next year. It's probably going to be, you know, three or four years down the track at the very earliest, but it's not 10 years and it's not 15 years. That probably wraps it up. We think we've got the people to execute. We've got the track record. We're in the right spot in the biggest market for uranium in in the world. The US is still the largest buyer of uranium with 50 million pounds a year. And look, they really aren't producing any at a time, or very modest amounts at a time when their core supplier, Kazakhstan, not only cannot meet its current production requirements, but a lot of its future production is spoken for by Russia, and in China and you know, outside the JV agreements. So, you know, we think that um, the US is the place to be because the customers need the uranium. Um, we think Wyoming is a great place to be because that's where production is is happening. Yes, there's some in Texas as well, but Wyoming we believe is where it is happening, and where it's going to happen. Um, and um, and we think we're well positioned with projects that have, particularly low humor, have a genuine uh, a genuine possibility of moving forwards towards an economic outcome.
0: Bruce, thank you for that. And in respect to the US, it is a victim of its own ignorance. Well, <laughs> why don't we wrap it up there? One last question for you. What is the best way for interested parties to reach out to the company, Bruce?
1: There's, I guess, a couple of ways. I mean, my, for anyone who's on the pod, list of the podcast and wants to talk to me, then they can just email me at um, bruce at gtienergy.au. If you go to the company's website, there's an email address, which is info at gtienergy.au. That will get to me. But if you want to address me directly and make sure it doesn't go into the the general uh, pool, then it's bruce at gtienergy.au. And I really do welcome people reaching out and asking questions, I don't, you know, I, I think it, um, it helps me stay in touch with what um, what people are thinking and asking. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the best parts of the job from my point of view, assuming you don't want to uh, give me abuse, of course.
0: Yeah. Well, Bruce, thank you for that. Very kind of you to share that uh, for the audience. Well, look, I really appreciate the time today. We went over quite a bit. Thanks again, and appreciate the introduction to the company. Keep up the progress, and we hope you'll come back again soon to update. Thank you. Great.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for
0: uh, having me on the podcast.